Hello, I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. Welcome to the latest episode of the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Pervert Patel, the Head of Municipal Client Portfolio Managers at Nuveen. Welcome, Perva, to the program. It's great to be here, Marianne. All right, so we're going to talk about the municipal market today, also kind of what we call the muni market. And a lot has happened in the fixed income world. In the past year, we've seen interest rates go from zero to just over um, 5%. And I, if you can, there's a lot of people on the program that may not know what the municipal market really is. Um, can you really just define a little bit about what is, and we call it the muni market for short, what is the muni market? Sure thing. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because it really sets up how we view the municipal bond market within the bond market. So the U.S. bond market is about $50 trillion large, and about half of that is U.S. Treasury and agency debt. And then there's the corporate bond market, but then there's also the municipal bond market, which is about $4 trillion of the overall U.S. bond market. What we do in the municipal bond market is we allow issuers that have some sort of community purpose to issue debt in a way that their interest payments for the buyer of those bonds is tax exempt. So there's a mutually beneficial relationship. So the issuer gets to issue debt at a lower rate and the bond buyer gets to get the benefit of tax exempt income as part of their investment strategy. And they're normally backing some type of service or project within a state, is that correct? Within a state, they're usually offered by state and local governments or some sort of political entity that is called a municipality. Okay, can you explain the actual structure, right? Because there's different kinds of structures where they can issue depending on the project. Is right, that correct? Right. So we look at the municipal bond market in a couple different ways. First, we can take a look at it just in the larger sectors. So there's revenue municipal bonds and then there's general obligation municipal bonds. The general obligation bonds are the ones that you consider the typical municipal bonds are issued by state and local governments, so cities, county, states. And they will issue based on the ability of their tax collections. So a county will levy a tax, a city will levy a tax, a state will have state income taxes, and that revenue that's generated by the tax collection will be used to pay off the debt service of these municipal bonds. Typically, these are high quality, very um, low default type of municipal bonds. So they are typically on the safer side. Exactly. Exactly. So they're a little different than corporate bonds where their corporate bonds are going to be a little bit more sensitive to the economic cycle. On the other side, we have revenue bonds. So First of all, GOs make about 44% of the municipal bond market, so almost half. The other half is revenues. And so revenues, most of these revenue bonds are going to be mostly investment grade, um, where you're issuing debt or an entity is issuing debt like a power company or a school or a, um, a certain type of, of essential service issuer that is very essential to a community. So you're going to continue to pay your water bill even if the economy is down. So it's almost like another tax on 
on a community. So these are also very, um, in terms of credit quality, safer on the credit spectrum. They're very high quality. In the revenue um, area of municipal bonds, you can get some lower rated credits as well. So this is where you can pick up some additional yield because you're taking a little bit more credit risk. So triple B and below investment grade or even non-rated municipal bonds traffic in this space where you have less essential services. So like a convention center or a toll road that is um, an optional way to get to and from um, certain points in a community. So you have these different kinds of municipal bonds and this different credit spectrum. But overall, these are the two general places where you see the two sectors. And then within that, you have other sectors. Um, on credit quality, you'll also see that the municipal bond market is typically very high quality. So 90% of the municipal bond market is triple A's, double A's, and singly rated municipal bonds. So very, very high quality. Um, the remainder of the market, so the remaining 10%, is triple B and below investment grade. And that's sometimes where most investors in the municipal bond markets, they're not looking for those types of bonds. So you can find pockets of of opportunity and mispriced opportunities. And if you can do the credit homework on it, you can really find some deals. So I'm, I'm curious, because now we have 50 states. States issue munis. That's right. Um, does their fiscal backdrop actually matter when you're looking to build a portfolio? And then how you incorporate that uh, into your analysis, What this, how the state um, is fiscally positioned? Absolutely. I mean, that is what we look at when it comes to credit quality. So maybe investors get caught up more so in the politics of what's going on in the state, but we want to look at the financials of the state. Is the state able to collect the appropriate amount of tax collections that they are expecting? So right now we're in the budgeting process. You hear a lot about California. California is expecting or actually posturing that they are going to see a, de a budget deficit, and that could potentially um, result in a lot of cuts in the budget. And so we're looking at the bottom line. We're looking at California's uh, ability to be able to collect a certain level of taxes to be able to pay for the um, amount of uh, debt service that they have on the books. So I think when you look at at the state levels, you want to make sure that the states are are doing very well because then they also have a trickle down effect where locals will get funding from states and that will be supportive to their credit health as well. So state um, finances are very, very important. So you said that the muni market is $4 trillion, correct? Yes. Um, I remember munis even early in my career. So that's that spans 40 years. What has the growth in the market been like uh, for the muni market? Interestingly, so I've been in, I've been in, um, the business for 24 years, and we really haven't seen much growth in the municipal bond market. So um, sometime around 2007, 2008, there was a reconciliation of how much debt was outstanding in the municipal bond market. And we saw that it was nearly $4 trillion back then, and we're still at $4 trillion. So there's not been an explosion of debt like, you know, some people are concerned about the U.S. government and their... Um, uh, issuance of debt. In the municipal bond market, we're just not seeing that. And we also have this natural uh, facility where municipalities, as interest rates move up and down, 
can call back their debt. There's a call feature on most long-term debt so they can refinance. They have a lot of opportunities to refinance their debt, which keeps their debt service or the cost of borrowing a lot lower. So it is it it remarkably hasn't grown to the degree that we've seen the US government debt load grow. So I'd be curious though. So so supply hasn't grown. Has demand grown though? Yeah. Worth the investment. Yes. And you know, we've seen the mutual fund investor grow mutual funds over the last 15 years or so. So in 2007, 2008, the municipal mutual fund industry was about $650 billion. And at the peak, before we had the big sell-off last year, at the peak, we were just about a trillion dollars in municipal mutual funds only. So these were um, 40 act funds or mutual funds that invest in municipal bonds specifically. So that growth has been really a function of what happened in the global financial crisis. When we were in the middle of the global financial crisis, we saw a significant change in the municipal bond market. Prior to 2008, half of municipal bonds were coming AAA insured. And then we know what happened in 2008 to AAA insurers. Many of them lost their AAA rating. And so post-2008, maybe 5 to 10% of new issuance comes uh, with insurance wrapper. So investors now couldn't rely on just the insurance to be able to own the highest quality debt. They had to do some digging. They had to understand the credits a little bit better. And so they've kind of shifted into institutional management where you have the institutional institutional manager doing the credit research for you within a mutual fund format. And I'm sure you have analysts that help the portfolio manager. Absolutely. We have 25 credit research analysts on staff, and we assign internal credit ratings to every single holding. And, you know, we actually have a lot of um, analysts on staff. I'd say probably like six or seven on staff that used to work at Moody's or S&P. And it's interesting. Which are the credit rating agencies. Yes, the credit rating agencies. And so it's interesting to hear their perspective because they you they know the methodology that the rating agencies. They know their lens and what they're looking for. See it how we do it. And so we're forward looking. We're the investor, whereas the rating agencies might be a little bit more backward looking, a little slower to um, see upgrades and downgrades, whereas we need to be ahead of that in order to produce returns for our shareholders. So what do you, what are some of the things that you're seeing in the near term and longer term in terms of the trends um, in municipals? Yeah, it's, it's a very great credit situation. I like what credit looks like right now. At the state level, um, we have all rainy day funds have been replenished. And so even if we come into a recession, I think we can fare through that rather well because you have that ability to dip in that rainy day fund in case revenues decline. Um, Depending on how deep the recession or the economic slowdown might be, that will kind of determine how much they will access these rainy day accounts. And so uh, to us, we're seeing more upgrades than downgrades and rating agencies are upgrading more bonds than downgrading. So we're seeing about three upgrades to every one downgrade. That's an incredible credit environment. That is. And even when you think about defaults or credit distress, knowing that there's potential for an economic slowdown in the future, 
you don't see it as immediately as maybe you see it in the corporate bond market because they're going to be much more sensitive to the economic cycle. In the muni market, because of the way that we're structured, because of the way debt is offered, you have um, debt service reserve, you have, um, you have rainy day funds, you have a lot of different tripwires before you get to the point where you're at least in technical default or even monetary default, which is when they're not paying their interest payments on time. So it doesn't happen often. And when it happens, we start, we hear about it years in advance. Well, that's good to know. Um, recently, the president signed an act called the Inflation Protection Act. Right. And it really helps give like subsidies and credits for various different projects. Does the municipal market um, benefit in any way or, or have any disadvantages? Yeah, we were very happy to see that. And we were very happy to see the things that were in it. So there were a couple of places that impacted certain of our holdings. So there was a nuclear energy subsidy that was being paid um, to certain clean energy producers. And then there's also a, um, a railroad subsidy as well. So we own a high-speed rail in South Florida. And we own a nuclear energy company in the Midwest. And both of those have seen some tremendous performance since that act was passed. Now, you did mention um, a recession and how the market can react. But I'd, rather, I'd like you to go a little bit deeper um, because there's a lot of people concerned the United States will be going into a recession. And in the credit markets of fixed income, often there can be issues um, with with defaults in, in the credit market. Can you dive a little bit deeper in you know, are you looking for a recession, not looking for a recession? How does a recession normally impact uh, the, the municipal market or how you analyze it? Sure. So um, we are in the recession camp in that we do think that there will be a recession, but it will be mild or moderate type of recession, not like what we saw in 2008, 2009. Um, and in that environment, we think at least municipals should fare well. Like I said, rainy day funds are full. Um, activity, which is another thing that we tax, and services are still being used. And so that allows municipalities to kind of have a, a constant stream of income that shouldn't fluctuate tremendously. And if it does, you have these safeguards in place, debt service reserve, rainy day funds, those types of things. So when we look at it that way, we don't see tremendous amount of credit impairment. And even on the default front, I mean, to take it into perspective, municipals don't have a default rate. We usually look at it on a gross basis, how much par or how many bonds defaulted because it's so small. So last year we- Very rare. Very rare. So last year we saw $1.6 billion of municipals default. And that's- in a $4 trillion market, that's four-tenths of 1%. So it's really, you know, uh, slicing it really thinly when it comes to defaults in the municipal bond market. In some cases, actually, when we're looking at high-yield credits, we're looking for those defaults. We see them as opportunities because in some cases, you can find um, opportunities to work out of a deal you buy in at a distressed price and then you can work out at a higher price and it allows for tremendous uh, total return if you if you call it right. It sounds like if you're in a higher income bracket, um, you're concerned about the economic environment, that maybe municipals, you know, could be a possible almost like defensive uh, way of 
uh, protecting your portfolio. A lot of people have talked about 60-40 is dead, meaning 60% equities, 40% bonds. But it sounds like there could be, um, depending on the client and, and their risk profile and their income needs, that munis can actually fit into a portfolio um, given maybe the, an uncertain outlook for, for the economy. Yes, especially if we see a flight to quality. Uh, municipals generally participate in a flight to quality trade. So when the stock market, if it starts to swoon in the second half of the year, then we could see people focus their attention to fixed income type of investments, including treasuries and municipal bonds and corporate bonds. So I think that you're correct in that it is a good idea to look at it for a high net worth investor, somebody that is paying a lot of taxes, that wants some relief from taxes in their non-qualified part of their accounts. And it's it's to me, it's it's a place where you can mitigate some of the volatility. So even if we see a recession, we're probably not going to see credit spreads widen out tremendously. In the municipal space, we are at a different magnitude than what corporate bonds usually experience. In 2008, corporate bonds spread out to 2,000 basis points. That's a huge move for high-yield corporates, whereas municipal bonds only went out 600 basis points. So we're on a different scale. And I just don't see, with the credit health that we have right now, I don't see spreads widening for any good reason except for maybe a misunderstanding and then they come right back. So to us, they're providing really great opportunity to to get a high level of income that's tax-free. Now, let's talk about high-yield um, municipals. Um, there's always a lot of concern when you go into a recession owning uh, the high-yield high, high yield fixed income market because of the uh, potential credit risks, right? right? And obviously, the more risk you take in the bond market, the, the higher the yield. How is the muni market positioned in terms of high yield, and does it have the same kind of risk profile? Yeah, so um, we talked a little bit about spread. So we're about we're spread out about uh, 250 basis points above AAA rated bonds. So, you know, our high yield products are yielding somewhere between five and seven percent tax exempt. So that's very impressive when you add back in the taxes. So a taxable equivalent yield is over 10 percent. There are a lot of people saying that only the you know, over time the U.S. equity market will only have seven percent. So that that that's a nice income. It's about what you keep, not what you earn, right? So if you're paying taxes on that kind of return, a 7% return, because it's an equity return, then it's going to eat into your take home. And so I think that is an important factor to kind of think about when it comes to municipal. So in high yield, even if we see an uptick in defaults, we don't usually see defaults happen right away. They happen a couple of years later. So like in 2008, which was our worst default year, Actually, it wasn't until 2010. Worst year in a lot of pockets. Yeah. So, but we didn't see defaults until 2010, and we saw four billion dollars of defaults. So, like I said, one in 1.6 percent last year, or 1.6 billion dollars last year. But this year, uh, in 2010, we saw four billion. So, really, again, not a whole lot. And when we have these defaults, there's some sort of lean on an asset. And that allows us to get a much better recovery than when you have corporates defaulting. So corporates just liquidated, and depending on where you are in the capital structure, you have to food fight for whatever cash that they have. In municipals, there's an, a specific asset that will back up 
the debt service and you will have a lien on that that asset which if you go through a default you might have to own it might be not so liquid but eventually it's worth something and that's why our recovery rates are significantly higher corporate recovery rates somewhere around 35 cents to the dollar municipal bond recovery rates are about 66 67 cents to the dollar that's quite significant that's a that's a that's a big difference um i think it would be also good to point out diversification right if you only own a couple of your municipal bonds in your own portfolio you're not really that diversified but if you buy a fund how many bonds could wind up being in that fund, right? And you get the benefit of the diversification. So just in case something did happen to a particular issuer, it's not going to be as impactful. Am I correct? Right. Absolutely. And I think that's the one of the best things about the fund format is that you do have that um, wide variety of credits within the portfolio and they've been accumulated over time. So if one goes awry, it's usually not a big portion of the portfolio, and it wouldn't hurt the overall net asset value or just the valuation of that particular investment vehicle tremendously. And that's on purpose. We do that on purpose. So our large open-end high-yield fund, it's about $18 billion large, has over 2,500 line items. Wow. If you don't mind, I'd like to pivot a little bit. Sure. And kind of talk to one another, women to women, or woman to woman. Yes. Um, you have a very interesting background. Uh, by education, you're a chemical engineer. Uh, we normally don't see a lot of chemical engineers on Wall Street. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so what was your path like um, as a woman with that kind of uh, educational background? How did, how did you find Wall Street? Yeah, my, my dad, actually. We used to sit around on Sunday mornings and he would look at uh, either Value Line or the Wall Street Journal and and teach me about stocks. And so he, you know, he bought a couple of stocks for me. Actually, I think it was J.P. Morgan. And they showed me how to look up the prices. And I, I kind of got into it then. So I was young, maybe 13, 14 years old and just carried that with me. And then when I had the opportunity to join Naveen 24 years ago, it was great. And it it just all clicked for me because it was something that I really enjoyed learning about. The numbers remarkably are the same, you know, standard deviation, R squared, all of the technical numbers that you you work with in finance, in stock market, in investments, everything are the same as they are in the engineering world. So um, that was a pretty easy transition for me. And then as I, and I, I think I always say that, um, when, when you have a bear market, there's no better teacher. So I started in 1999. Nuveen was known for municipal bonds. We had a lot of municipal bond um, business, and we had a terrible bond market in 1999. The, the Fed raised rates significantly starting in the summer of, of 99 and onward to pop the dot-com bubble. So I learned a lot. And then, you know, sure enough, there's just more and more bear markets where I kept learning more and more. Can you go a little bit deeper on what your career path was actually like? Yeah. So I started at Nuveen with, so pre-internet, you had a phone number published on marketing materials. And so people would call in and ask for more marketing materials or ask questions about specific products. I was on the other side, me and 20 other folks um, that I still keep in touch with. It was such a great job. Um, we answered the phone. And we, but that's how you learn everything. Everything. You know everything. 
it's actually a great starting point. People would call in and say, hey, what is it says this on page 40 of the prospectus. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so we'd have to figure it out. And it was really great. It's going to be interesting if ChatGDP will be able to do that for us. Amazing, right? I mean, my first job in college was I was human Google, where they would send in, like, I need this article. I would go to the library, photocopy it, and then they would mail it to to the the um, company that was asking for it. So, yeah, technology is going to change everything. Yes, dramatically, dramatically. But it's all good. Yeah. I've learned that, that it's all good. We just have to learn to adapt to it. Exactly. Um, I always like to ask this question of my guests. Do you have any career advice or mentoring advice for um, who is ever watching or listening to this podcast? The best advice I've picked up about work-life balance is it's a long-term average. So don't think of it in a day time frame. Don't think of it in a month time frame. But in the long term, are you spending your time in the right places? And that took a lot of pressure off of me because, you know, when I was early in my career, I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can have kids. I can be married. I can have a great career. And you can't have it all in one day. You know, something has to give. But in the long term, if you're looking five years, 10 years down, long-term averages, I think if you have a good long-term average on that balance, I think that's great. Do you want to know, I've never heard it said that way before. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. And I remember one time I was on the phone with my mother crying because my house wasn't dirty, dirty, but it was a mess. I know what you mean. And I and I had kids and I'm like, but mom, I got to clean the house. And my mom said, the kids are not going to remember that the house is messy, but they'll remember whether or not they spend time with it. That's 100% right. And that's where, you know, over the long term, it will all balance out. But maybe that day was a little bit uneven. Um. What is the shifting landscape um, that you hope to see for women in business? Because I'm still surprised that, you know, we've made a lot of progress in, in the industry, but we still don't even represent 50% of, of the industry. So what do you think we need to do to be able to get more women interested or how do we shift so we can have a better presence? That's a million dollar question. I mean, things like this are great. That's one step in the right direction. Um, being out there and, I mean, you asked the question about mentoring. I try to do that as much as possible. So if, if and I don't force it on people. I'm like, if you need guidance, I'm here to help you. I can answer any question, full open door policy. I think it's tough because I, I think there's a perception of what finances or a career in finances. It's investment banking, 90-hour weeks or 100-hour weeks. It's smile and dial as a stockbroker like in the movies. And it's really not like that. And I'm not really sure what to do to help um, young people, young women understand that there's a variety of careers within finance and you can kind of find your way. You and I were talking about creativity in this field and it doesn't seem like it on the outside but there's a there's a lot of opportunities to be very creative within your business and i i think that is missed by a lot of young people so so my aunt went to wall street aunt b some of our listeners have heard about aunt b uh in 1956 and obviously she was one of very few back then but as women started coming into the business they started meeting with one another um, they befriended one another, supported one another, would go out and celebrate when anyone 
um, was promoted. Uh, but what they wound up doing was going into the colleges and educating the women on what Wall Street was and the opportunity. So us women may have to find another way of balancing our life a little bit uh, to try to help educate women that there are different career paths and they're not always, uh, you know, 12-hour days. Right. Um, and, and there can be sometimes some flexibility. And you can bob and weave throughout your career depending on where what stage you are uh, in your career. Would you agree with that? Agreed. And I think right now, especially for young women coming out of college or even just starting out, there's a tremendous opportunity to kind of build your career. You know, there's a there's there's a uh, an absence of women in our business, and there are companies that are looking for women to be integrated into the business and grow and have tremendous careers. And I think that offers a young woman a lot of opportunity to kind of decide how she wants her career to look. And I think that's very exciting. So. We need to tell the story to more young people. Yes, yes, we do. And in the next few years, women will really, truly have the largest percentage of wealth over men. Right. We already control the purse strings, right? We, we're the ones, the big spenders in the household, <laughs> but we're going to have the majority of the wealth in this country. Right. Uh, which is, is actually astounding. So let, let's, again, pivot a little bit. Okay. And let's talk about your company. Can you tell me a little about, about who is Naveen and, and how are you positioned and um, what are your um, edges in, in, in the industry? Well, obviously, particularly in the municipal bond market. Sure. We manage nearly $200 billion in municipals, um, and we are the largest active manager of municipal bonds in the business. So we... We, I, I like to think about it in different like sub-businesses within the municipal bond group. So we manage a uh, number of closed-end funds. We're the largest closed-end fund sponsor. We manage um, mutual funds, and we offer the biggest variety of mutual funds, state-specific, uh, national funds up and down the credit spectrum, uh, number two municipal mutual fund provider. Separately managed accounts. We run about 50,000 separately managed accounts, which are private accounts for individuals that um, have $250,000 or greater to invest in their high quality accounts. And we have discretion over them. So we run that. So if you live in a particular state and have certain benefits by investing in those states, you could build out a very specific designed portfolio. Absolutely right. So state of California, state of New York, these are two of our largest asks for separately managed account customization. We also run funds in this place as well. Um, and then the fourth area, which I think is the, the more interesting kind of new development is the alternative space. So we have alternative, alternative wrappers for a traditional uh, investment. So municipal bonds typically are bought individually by investors by through an SMA or by themselves, or they buy it in mutual fund or a closed down fund format. And more recently, over the last 10 years, you've seen this alternative structure. And I think it's great because it allows for managers like us to look at these sometimes broken credits and decide whether we can, you know, find opportunity here and get better total returns. When you say alternative, are you referring to a private equity vehicle or what kind of investment is it called? It's not private equity. It's still going to be municipal bonds. 
Sometimes we will buy private placements, but it will be municipal bonds within an interval fund structure or a limited partnership structure. So there's limit less liquidity, but with that lesser liquidity, we like to call it patient capital, you get to participate in these opportunities that can result in really great total returns. It takes longer. So when you talk a little bit about liquidity in, in, in the municipal space, where is there liquidity and then how, how does that liquidity change based on vehicle? There's a reason why 90% of municipal bonds are in that high quality space. It's because the higher quality, the more liquid those names are going to be. So, you know, the AA tranche is about 50% of the municipal bond market. 25% is AAA. Those are very easy to sell. The entire market knows them. Regular people know, you know, a AAA rated school or AAA rated city. And you have no problem in terms of having to execute those bonds or to sell those bonds in a bad market. The lower you get in the credit spectrum, that's when liquidity becomes an issue. And so when we kind of look at how we construct our portfolios, we have to balance liquidity with um, opportunity in the high yield space. So, you know, if we're running a, an open-end fund, we have to be very cognizant of how much outflow we could have in any given time, and we have to be able to have pockets of liquidity to meet those redemptions. Um, but in the structures I was talking about, the alternative structures, you don't necessarily have the in and out. So in a limited partnership or in an inter interval fund structure, you have daily in on the interval structure. Um, in the limited partnership, you're in monthly or quarterly, but your exits are usually quarterly on both of those strategies. And so that allows for us to traffic a little bit more in high yield where when the market is down, we're not going to be uh, subject to a big herd mentality. That's typically what you see with mutual fund investors. When, when it starts, there's like billions of dollars that go out the door in a very short period of time. And it's, it's a challenge, especially if you're running a high yield kind of portfolio where liquidity becomes diminished, everyone's trying to sell, and they don't want to buy the high yield stuff, they want to buy the high quality stuff. So double A's and triple A's do well. But if you have a managed outflow and you know the kinds of outflows that you're going to have, it gives portfolio managers time to generate pockets of liquidity, um, get ready for those liquidity events, and then pay the withdrawals out. And that's a lot easier and it's much more efficient for the shareholder. Just like when you were talking, the analysts, they have to predict out over a period of time. Exactly. Yes. And that's exactly what these structures let us do. So we've covered a lot today, but is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I didn't ask you about today? You know, I think one of the biggest problems that we have or that's facing us as investors and advisors to investors is the short part of the curve and how much investors are enamored by mutual money market funds and T-bills right now because you have these tremendous yields on the short part of the curve. But I think that's going to go away and we need to really think about extending out right now. I met an advisor a few weeks ago. He was telling me he got into the business in 1980 and he couldn't sell anyone a 15% yielding 10-year treasury because everyone was buying a one-year at 18%. I think we're ha going to have the same problem because in hindsight, you should have bought that 10-year treasury, clipped your coupon for 10 years at 15%.
Right now we're at a different magnitude. Um, it's not 18 and 15, but we're at 5% on the short part of the curve and the middle part of the curve is like three or 4%. So that is not as attractive, but I think we need to have that conversation with investors and start to think about investments instead of the vehicles that we use to park cash. And that is- Especially if the economy does become soft Maybe eventually the Fed could potentially cut rates, maybe not this year, but maybe next year. And those are right. That's part of the planning out. Exactly. And the part of the planning out. And can you talk about laddering? Because that's where yeah. laddering comes in. Laddering is a great idea. And the market will start pricing before the, the Fed starts moving. So before even the first cut, the market's going to start to price that in. So you want to be part of the pricing in because what that means for an investor is if you own the bond now and then the market starts to price in the first Fed cut, interest rates will go down, which means bond prices will go up. So your investment will produce a positive return. We want that. And in a laddered portfolio, I love that you brought that up because in a laddered portfolio, it forces you to keep putting money back to work on the longer end of the curve and keep trying to increase your income over time. Why don't you explain laddering? Sure. So like if you... Just for anybody that's out there that doesn't understand. It's a common way to invest in in bonds in general. So if you have, let's say, a one to 10 year ladder, you try to invest evenly across all of those maturities. So you have at least 10% of your portfolio coming due every year. So as these bonds mature or get closer and closer to maturity, they get shorter and shorter. And you're going to have a, a portion of your portfolio always maturing, and that means cash into your account, and that gives you the opportunity to put money back to work on the long end. So it's kind of like a conveyor belt where you have that one-year part of the curve continuing to um, mature, and then you put it back to work on the long end of the curve. So. Well, this has been really an absolutely wonderful discussion. I can't thank you enough um, for joining us here uh, today. And thank you all for joining and for tuning in. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities Inc. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities Advisory Services offered through Sanctuary Advisory Services offered through Sanctuary Advisors LLC and Sanctuary Registered Investment Advisors. Sanctuary Securities Inc. and Sanctuary Advisors LLC are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group LLC.